Now, um, welcome again. Great to see all of you. I'm a big fan of Google, and uh, I know some of you guys still use Yahoo. Um, for those of you that do, this is your God-given opportunity to repent. But for those that do use Google, um, just out of curiosity, I went on Google Images and I typed in Easter. Okay, you can do the same thing later. This is the first picture that pops up. Okay, first Easter picture. So Google has surmised that uh, Easter is most associated with uh, that picture. It takes 28 pictures on Google Images for there to be a cross that shows up or anything re- uh, religious, as it were, and it's a cross on an uh, Easter egg, okay? It takes another 35 pictures from that for there to have any semblance on Google Images of an empty tomb. I find it, I find it interesting. So it caused me to then ask the question, what in the world are we doing with an Easter bunny anyway, right? Like, how did the bunny come to get associated? Like, Jesus is risen, let's play with bunnies. Like, it just seems weird. Um, and it, maybe, maybe you're like me, like you, maybe you grew up in a family, you know, where your mom was like, no, you will take a picture with that Easter bunny. And maybe this was you. Maybe this was you right here. Like, just like, mom, please don't ever. I think this next one is actually from someone here in the, in the church. Uh, it's, like the, it's like the arms, like, take me to glory, Lord, now. Like, I don't want to deal with this. But, but listen. Um, then there's like, it's one thing if the Easter, if the Easter bunny looks friendly and then it's like, there's another thing if it looks like a werewolf, like check this out. It's like the, the Easter bunny of death. Like no wonder they're crying, right? Someone just misinterpreted, uh, the Easter bunny thing there. I also like the fact this, this picture was probably, you know, from the fifties or sixties, and, uh, and so maybe this was just how the Easter Bunny was. Uh, so seasoned folks, was this, is this accurate? I mean, is this, have things evolved? Okay. All right, good talk, thanks. Um, <laughs> take that down there if we can. Um, it's weird to me uh, how culturally we've um, assimilated and made associations with things that, that don't make sense. And we can uh, point the finger at culture all we want. I actually think we need to point the finger at ourselves today. Uh, I actually think we need to take a step back as followers of Christ and um, do some heavy evaluation. Well, it just so happens that uh, we here at Matthias, we, we teach the Bible verse by verse through books. And if you're just joining us, we've been in the book of Exodus. So you've already seen Exodus 12 has come on the screen which seems maybe odd to study the book of Exodus on Easter Sunday. You're like, come on, that's sacrilege. Like, you know, let's turn to one of the Gospels. Let's see an empty tomb. Um, But crazy enough in God's timing, this past week we got to study on Wednesday, our normal worship gathering. Uh, We got to study the Passover on Passover week. And then if you've uh, seen the chronological order of your scripture, the exodus of God's people from Egypt comes just after that. So you may walk in here and you'd be like, all right, Mark, I've seen Prince of Egypt, but I'm not understanding how Easter and Exodus um, are in cohesion. And so I pray over the next few minutes that each of us see that Exodus and Easter are actually way more connected than we'll ever get it cre- give it credit for. So that said, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. If you're just joining us, there's been 10 plagues worth of God's judgment and wrath on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He is through Moses and Aaron, his prophets in this case, been telling Pharaoh, let the people go. Pharaoh, continually a hardened heart, despite seeing 
tremendous amount of frogs and flies and gnats and dead livestock and hail that rains down like rain. I mean, he's seen all kinds of things. Well, the ninth plague was, was the killing of the firstborn in Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son. And so now the people in Egypt are at their wit's end, and you'll see in my Bible the subtitle, The Exodus, will begin verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Haste means quick. Uh, and, and they're doing this because the scripture says that there was not one house where someone wasn't dead in Egypt. The Israelites were, sla- uh, were, were saved by putting the blood of a lamb on a doorpost, but the Egyptian homes, uh, every single one, had a dead person in it. And so the Egyptians are finally done. They're like, listen, we have to get these people out of here because for they said at the end of verse 33, we shall all be dead too. If, if uh, this God or this uh, Moses and Aaron can wipe out our firstborn, then they can kill us too. So look at this. The people took, the Israelites, their dough, that's um, like dough, not money. Uh, the dough, uh, before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. So it gives, it, like they're just like gathering up all their belongings, including the dough that has yet to be cooked, the people, verse 35, of Israel had also done as Moses told them. Look at this, crazy. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Now, uh, we saw this before the plagues even started. God said, you're going to get gold and jewelry and clothing. If you've just been um, completely annihilated and you have all these possessions and the people can just go, it seems odd that then you would be commanded to like ask for things as you're leaving, like a parting gift. Hey, thanks so much for uh, being a part of killing our firstborn children and now here's some gold, uh, silver, and clothing. Like it, it just seems odd, but look at this. In like pirate talk, verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they, what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And, and I love the image here, listen. God doesn't just open the floodgates of bondage and say, now you're not enslaved anymore, good luck. He shows his people that he is about, in a merciful, gracious way, about blessing them in their journey. In other words, it's one thing to release someone from slavery, and it's it's a whole other thing to care for them afterwards. And so this is the image of, look, you guys are leaving Egypt, but you're not leaving empty-handed. Grab you some gold grab you some silver and grab you a nice old purple tunic. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. Look at this. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. I try to do as best of math that I possibly could here. 600,000 men, not including women and kids. So let's say a good chunk of those dudes are married, okay? Um, and, and so let's say, let's round up, let's say 600,000 men, let's say if 400,000 of them have wives, then right now that equals like 30 million, okay? And then, and then if they, like, if people be having babies, which, listen to this, and when they got there, when Jacob left Israel, okay, and he left for this land, there were 70 of them in about 1845 BC. 430 uh, years or so have passed, so we're in the 1400s BC. The number that I've seen from all scholars, we've went from 70 to now at least 1.23 million Israelites. 
and they just start leaving together. Listen, can you for one second imagine that scene? I don't, what does Bush Stadium hold? It's like, you know, better yet, what does Wrigley Field hold? Um, that's really what I'm interested in. Um, so imagine like 60 Wrigleys, okay? I mean, just massive amounts of people, 1. 2, 3, 4, 5 million Israelites on foot. Listen to this. In one moment, you have fathers who are already thinking about their children dying as slaves, all of a sudden getting the feeling of freedom. You have grandparents who knew for sure that they were going to die in slavery, all of a sudden not having an Egyptian on their back whipping them for more work. You have kids who can understand, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, who saw their fate before them, that they would be slaves too, they would die in Egypt too, when all of a sudden now in a massive Israelite parade, they're, they're leaving, they're moving somewhere, and not just moving, but a whole slew of them. Like maybe you went up with your extended family sometime on a vacation, now you can understand, right? It's one thing like to go with your family, it's a whole other thing when there's like 30 of you, Right? Got that one aunt, you don't even know her name. She's got a big mole and she kisses you, just kind of, you know. Nothing against moles or kissing, but you guys are with me. Look at this. And the people of Israel, they journeyed. And verse 38 says, look at this. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, who, who are the mixed multitude? Beautiful picture. These people, non-Israelites, possible Egyptians and other uh, folks from other lands, they see 1.2, 3, 4, 5 million leaving and they want to be a part of it. They see like the march of victory and they're like, we have to get in this. One of the greatest dangers of Easter is Monday. Because the world sees a whole bunch of people excited to commemorate. And they see believers that are ready and amped to exemplify all that's in their heart about the glory of Christ and an empty tomb. And they clap loud and they wear their beautiful pastels and they get together in mass portion. And we invite our neighbors and we invite our friends and some of you today have been invited by people to be a part of the victory parade, the celebration of the church. He's risen, right? And then Monday... One of, listen, the most confusing days in our entire world is watching these same believers who celebrated an empty tomb then live on Monday like he's still dead. Neighbors who were invited by people to come and celebrate who then watch that very neighbor who they sat next to in a church gathering look like Jesus is still in the tomb when the mixed multitude is gathered because they want to be a part of victory. They're tired of living in their lives. And so as this massive Israelite parade moves, people just start joining in. I'm telling you, church, I'm not so sure if Easter is as important as tomorrow morning is. When you're around your coworkers in the Easter, you know, as the time has now passed, And now they're looking at you. Now they're wondering. You're not wearing blue anymore. The green shirt's gone. Do they still see someone whose heart burns with the reality of the gospel? This mixed multitude just wants to be a part of the party. Verse 39, 
And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leaven. Look at this. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provision for themselves, which is counter any fun travel of mine. Right? I mean, I remember going on family trips. The best part of travel was mom's cookies that like melted in the middle of the van. You know what I'm saying? You're like, dude, throw me some of that mixed, you know, dough and chocolate chip. You know, and we'd all agree that if you're traveling, the best part is stopping at a gas station, right? Right? And when you're traveling all diet, it, do, it doesn't matter. Because, you know, those, those Cool Ranch Doritos, you'll have like six consecutive gas sta- station stops worth of Cool Ranch Doritos. Anybody? Right? So travel is a great time to eat. They didn't even have time to make provisions. So you've got a million and a half possibly people moving, and they've got their dough, gold, jewelry, and clothing but not even leavened bread. Now verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Um, Have you guys ever heard of Father Abraham? Yeah, he had many sons, right? (laughs) Many sons. And I'm one of them. (laughs) And so are you. God had told... God had told Father Abraham back in the middle of Genesis 15 and 16 that his descendants would spend 400 years in bondage. So how crazy is it, timely is it, sovereign is it, that now Moses records that the Israelites had spent 430 years in Egypt. Um, it seems like there's, there's like minimal connection. Like, Mark, way to go. Uh, the Exodus on Easter... Um, The reality is some of you guys uh, know exactly what years worth of slavery feels like. Maybe for you it was 37. 37 years of hopeless living. 37 years of waking up every single day lifeless. 37 years of going to a job that you hated, being married to someone that didn't love you, and looking at kids that you wondered if you could ever have a relationship with them. And then, in that 38th year, something changed. Uh, Some of you guys, maybe it was like me, like there was seven years of slavery. I came to Christ at a very young age. Looking out of the window, my mom and dad had told me about Christ so often, I thought God was big and cool. And so, at seven years old, broke the bondage of slavery through Jesus. But the reality is, for some of you, that time span is still going For some of you here today, it's like, yeah, 22 years and going strong. Enslaved by my sin, by the feeling that my life is meaningless, with dead-end relationship after dead-end relationship, and honestly, Mark, at times a desire that I don't want to live at all. For others of you, it's 60 years worth. Can you just imagine in this moment, 400 generation upon generation, And in one day, everything changes. Uh, I hear people say a lot that God can't do what he does in one day. In, In this story, in our lives, it just doesn't make sense. It's not possible. Mark, you don't understand my addiction. You don't understand my issues. You don't understand my problems. Um, I feel like a lot of times God enjoys doing the things that he does in one day with the nation of Israelites in your life and heart. 
430 years worth and in the continued understanding of his grace, verse 42 says, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of, of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. So God just doesn't say, hey, um, you guys go be freed from slavery. It's gonna be dark. Good luck. There's enough of you. You should be able to find your way. Look for Moses in the crowd. He'll have a large amplifier and he'll be able to guide and direct you. No, what does it, what does it say? God releases them from slavery and then by night he watches them. He's interested, he cares, he loves. Listen, I think some of you are afraid that if you were to be released from the slave-ridden life that you have, that then you wouldn't be cared for or you received what you would understand to be Christ at an earlier age and you didn't feel cared for. You didn't feel cared for by the church. Relationships in your body uh, harmed you. They left you out for dry. And so there's all this trepidation in your heart about being released from slavery because you think that you'll not be loved, that no one will truly care. So an Exodus story, it's kind of nice, beautiful, 1.5 or so, people getting released from the bondage of Egypt. Well, what does that have to do with Easter? Just after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to the disciples in Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 24. Check this out. As they were talking, the disciples, about these things, Jesus himself stood among them like appears. Okay. Like they're, they're, they're chatting about life and about the things that they've been experiencing. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears and he says to them, the first words he says, peace to you. Like, this seems like a strange greeting, right? You think maybe like a, some arms out, ta-da, you know, like, I, I'm here, it's all good, tomb is empty, I told you I would, but he chooses the words, peace to you. Are there any more pertinent words than peace to you? You see, listen, the disciples, pre the death and resurrection of Christ, only knew semblances of peace. They were around the Prince of Peace, yes, but they still weren't experiencing the true peace that would come in Christ conquering death. They were experiencing a peace, listen, that they were a part of God's family because they remembered that God had released their people from slavery from Egypt many years ago. And so they, like good pious Jews, would celebrate the Passover, would celebrate the festivals, remembering that God had released them from slavery. Egyptian uh, life can't hold us down. We've been freed. We're God's people. As great as releasing 1.5-ish million people from the hands of Egypt, it pales in comparison to Jesus showing up in this room and saying, peace to you. Do you guys understand that? 1.5 million people in a parade leaving 430 years of slavery pales in comparison to what he's done in your life. And it seems crazy because you're like, but Mark, like that, that was such an awesome event. Not as awesome. Not as awesome as the grace that's been extended to you, the peace that's been awarded you by his love and grace in Christ. So when he says peace to you, he means it. 
It's not a friendly greeting. It's not a salutation. It's not a nice way of reappearing. He is literally saying, boys, you have peace now. I've conquered death. So no matter what anti-peace thing you feel, there's something deeper. Uh, They're freaked out, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, right? Whoa, whoa, hey, like... Is this Jesus here with us? Like, are, you, are you sure? And look at what Jesus responds. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts raise in your hearts? I feel like on this Easter, that is the question for you and I. Imagine a whole slew, the parade, they're marching and dads are looking back at their kids and they're patting them on the back as they're moving forward and their smiles And there's joy and there's this sense of freedom. And grandpa's slowly moving around, right? And they're looking back at Egypt like raising their canes like, what what you got for us now, right? And there's kids just, you know, you picture them playing jacks or something that Israelite kids would do, right? Just everyone enjoying freedom. And then Monday comes and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and you lose the loved one. And you lose your job. And your marriage is in disarray. And the dating relationship that you had built up in your mind that for sure this was the one goes awry. And on and on and on. Isn't it in that moment that our faith is truly tested of whether or not he's actually risen? It's not today. It's tomorrow morning. It's Tuesday. It's Wednesday. When the world is watching, is he still alive, friends? Or not? Jesus tells the boys, why are you troubled? You take all of the troubles that you could ever even think of, and I just rose from the dead. There is, listen, please hear this, my friends. There is no more trouble. Of course, there's pain. Of course, there's hurt and things that we go through and mourning that we experience. But in those moments, it's in those moments of utter despair as the world presses in on us that we must remember that the tomb is still empty. And listen, this sounds like a nice, you know, very, you know, helpful, encouraging Easter message. Listen, guys, don't worry about your pain. Jesus is risen. Very much easier said than done. It makes for a good magnet on your fridge. But I have to ask you, is it true or not? In comparison to the troubles that you and I experience in this world, is he risen or not? Are we released from slavery or not? In Christ, is the bondage done or not, right? And so literally everything could be taken from me and in that moment the tomb is still empty. That's Easter. That's what the world is longing to see from you and I. Not a great pastel and a commemoration on on a Sunday. They're waiting to see you and I celebrate life when it seems like life would be all hopeless. That's why uh, Paul writes this in Galatians 5. 
For freedom, Christ has set us free. The shackles are gone. There is no more bondage. It's over. Listen, it's over. He's cut the chains. Stand firm, therefore. Let's stand together. Come on. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, therefore. What does shame and regret do? It causes you to want to huddle in the corner. Put your head in your arms that no one would ever see you. What does remorse want you to do? Hide. Don't tell anyone. Don't deal with it. Just sit by yourself and all of your sulking. But what does Paul tell the believers? Stand firm. Listen. Yeah, you've screwed up. Yeah, you've sinned. Yeah, you've gone awry. Yeah, you've done some things. Yeah, you're experiencing pain. Christian, in Christ, he sets you free. Stand firm. And then look what he says. And do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's no need to go back in Egypt. Don't turn around. Could you imagine in the massive parade that is the Israelites, hundreds of thousands of them saying, not today. And they begin to turn around, embracing slavery, wrapping their arms around slavery. It was better to get whipped and smacked than freedom. That's what the world's seeing in a lot of us. It's better to be under the yoke because we know what that is. But friends, I'm telling you, he set us free. So I look out a, a whole bunch of friends of mine, um, brothers and sisters that I get to journey with. And I want to I say to you who have come in this room feeling like your time span is, Mark, I've spent 47 years in slavery. And I say to you, what about this day? What about if this day changed it at all? What about if this day the chains were cut and the bondage of sin was gone and the reality of an all-consuming death was over? Some people in this room have experienced that. And for those of you, maybe now is the day. And for some, it's been trying to hide back in it, trying to turn back to Egypt. Freedom has created a lot of chaos for you. I'm telling you, church, come on. The reality of an empty tomb is that it's still empty tomorrow. So may the world see you and I, believers, standing firm in victory that is ours in Christ now until he comes back. And it's in that that the world will know they can experience freedom too.